0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. We should think of spirit with a capital initial, for I hold that the Holy Spirit furnishes us with our only power to overcome the flesh, and that it is against the Holy Spirit that the flesh lusts with all of its power. It is true that His Spirit... Beareth witness with our spirit, his spirit, capital S, with our spirit, small s, but it is with our renewed spirit, as we thus have been made partakers of the divine nature. <laughs>
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Christian's Obligation. A soldier who fails to follow orders may be found guilty of dereliction of duty. Many Christians are also guilty of dereliction of duty because they fail to follow God's orders and they fail to lay hold of the spiritual resources He has made available to every believer. Are you fulfilling your Christian obligation to live by God's grace and power and experience victory and holiness in your spiritual life? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Christian's Obligation."
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness, and rejoice that thou art our God. Thou dost rule and overrule, and all things are under thy control, whether the forces of nature or of men, angels or demons. Thou hast thine eternal purpose in this hour, and we pray thee that thou shalt use thy word to thine honor and glory. Bless each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In our studies in Romans, we've come now to Romans eight, twelve, and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now our text begins with a therefore and it is necessary for us to look backwards into the preceding portion in order to understand the foundation on which the truth of the present text will stand. In our last study, we saw that the Holy Spirit of God who raised up the Lord Jesus from the dead is dwelling in the believer, and in consequence, this same God who raised up Christ from the dead shall keep on furnishing life within the framework of our mortal bodies through this Holy Spirit who is dwelling in us. The sphere of victory is to be within our dying bodies. Therefore, the apostle continues, therefore we are debtors. God has made a large deposit of life and power to our account, and we are debtors for that life and power, and must someday give an account of how we have used it, or how we have neglected it, to fail to lay hold upon the power that has been given us is a dereliction of duty, just as the failure to invest the one talent in order to gain interest caused the strongest denunciation from the Lord in the parable of the talents. We have within us the strength and power of our old Adamic nature, the downward pull of our flesh, but God has gone to the depths of Calvary and the heights of the resurrection in order to furnish us with a power that will make it possible for us to live lives of victory. The power of the flesh is within the life of the unsaved man, but both of these powers, that of the flesh and that of the spirit, the spirit of the life-giving God who raised up Christ from the dead, are within the bodies of the believers. Now, since God gave us all of this power of the resurrection, we are debtors to him to use it for the purpose for which it was given to us. Perhaps a simple example will help to clarify the teaching. On most of our great railroads, there are control towers where a traffic engineer can switch one or another train to the main line as he sees fit. Now, in our text, God is telling us that the redeemed man stands in a control tower and that this man is debtor to God to pull the switch that will allow the resurrection power of Christ to run down the main line of our lives. If we deliberately reach out and pull the switch that allows the flesh to take control of our lives, we are out of the will of God and will be fully accountable for our failure to take that which he has provided for us we are debtors to the plan of God, we are debtors to the life of God, we are debtors to the power of God. We are not debtors to the flesh, to live after the flesh. That power of the flesh is within us, but why should we release it into the main line of our lives if it is going to spoil life and lead to wreckage? I cannot stress too strongly that this portion of the epistle is in a stream of teaching that is addressed to those who have been born again, who have been made alive in Christ, who have gone on with God to spiritual knowledge. For there have been commentators who have taken the next portion of our text and twisted it far from its possible meaning. For we now read, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. And there have been those who have attempted to refer this passage to the second death, and thus to nullify all that has gone before concerning the nature and certainty of justification by faith apart from the works of the law. The death that is mentioned here cannot, in any exegesis that recognizes the advancing nature of the revelation of truth in the epistle, cannot be interpreted as referring to the second death. Paul has little more than finished the declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And are not the objects of this revelation here addressed as brethren? What is this death then that is mentioned in our text? Brethren, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. I believe that the answer is to be found in a series of verses in the New Testament which speak of the sin unto death. One of the most solemn texts in all of the scripture is to be found near the close of the first epistle of John. It has given pause to believers in all ages and calls forth as many questions today as almost any other passage in the Bible. We read in 1 John 5:16 and 17, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and God shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, if we're to understand this text, we must pay attention, first of all, to the immediate context and to the larger context of the whole epistle. First of all, we must note that this epistle is addressed to believers only. It is not an epistle that is written to Mohammedans, Buddhists or unregenerate Protestants, or to the unsaved of whatsoever description. This epistle has an address on it, as definitely as any letter is ever addressed. In fact, I once led a postman to Christ with the 13th verse of this chapter, pointing out that he gave his life to reading addresses and seeing that the communications were delivered to the proper parties. We discussed the fact that a mailman has learned to read an envelope from the bottom upwards. But here in the 13th verse, God says, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. There's the address. You that believe in the name of the Son of God. So we start our study with the certain knowledge that God is addressing true believers. Furthermore, the verse we have just quoted in 1st John contains the purpose of the epistle. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Now, here is an important verse in the doctrine of assurance or certainty. It is possible for believers to know that they have eternal life. They need not spend their time wondering if they will receive eternal life. They do not need to have the frame of mind which says, I hope that I will have eternal life. I'm trying, I'm doing the best I can. I hope that maybe, possibly, perhaps. No, no. God himself states that this epistle of John was written for the purpose of assuring the one who has put his trust in Christ that he is the present possessor of eternal life. Luther, in one of his works, spoke of those who said that they believed certain doctrines without understanding the nature of what they thought they believed. He spoke of one of the founders of an ancient heresy who contradicted himself strangely, and who most certainly did not believe in the logical implications of the premises which he set forth. Luther said that there was much of such muddy thinking, and that we must not take all men who thought themselves to be theologians as seriously as they might think they should be taken. Now, this is certainly true of those who deny the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the safety and the security of the believer. The purpose of John's epistle is to assure believers that they are the present possessors of eternal life. And the purpose of this text, as we shall see, is to warn them of the consequences of certain specific sins after they are saved and to explain to them that they risk severe chastisement at the hand of the Lord if they transgress the word of God. If one possesses eternal life, it should go without saying. It will be impossible for him to lose it. If it could be lost, then it could not have been eternal in the first place. We never find it said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have six months life. If we did find such a verse, it would mean that the soul was in absolute security until six full months had passed, and that he could not be lost at the end of five months and even during the six months, including the very last seconds of the period. If the promise had read that God would give 10-year life to a believer, then he would be secure for the full 10 years. If God gives eternal life to the believer, and eternal life is the only spiritual life that is mentioned in the Bible, then the conclusion of the Lord Jesus Christ himself must be adopted. For it follows logically, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That we have quoted from John 10:28 and 9. Now to deny the doctrine of eternal security is to deny the doctrine of justification by faith. There are some who may cry out that they believe in justification by faith, but that they do not believe in eternal security. They are the muddy thinkers of the type that Luther wrote about. For if a man is justified, he is seen in the eternal righteousness of God in Christ and he has been made accepted in the beloved. The context of our text further states in plain words that the person who denies the doctrine of eternal security makes God a liar. For it is of this that the 10th verse speaks, First John five ten. The preceding verse, the ninth, states that if we receive the witness of men, that is, if we believe information clerks, telephone operators, and anyone else, that the witness of God is greater. God cannot lie, while the people around us whom we believe in all the routine matters of life are subject to errors, either malicious errors or errors by mistake. The 10th verse then states, First John 5, 10, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God and the whole passage shows that it means that he that believeth not God in the matter of the possession of eternal life, or he that believeth not the witness of the Spirit concerning the possession of eternal life, he that believeth not God in these matters hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. A true Christian must believe the record. And what is the record? The next verse tells us, and this is the record that God hath given to us, past tense, hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Unless a believer is ready to accept the fact of the present possession of eternal life, God says that this man is making him a liar. Now, with this background, we can come to our text concerning the sin unto death. The one who objects to eternal security frequently says that such a doctrine will lead to a low-level Christian life. We deny that those who have believed this truth have a lower spiritual life than those who do not. The whole army of the followers of the Reformed theology have held to the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. Almost the entire world of Baptists have proclaimed this truth. Moody, Spurgeon, Torrey, Chapman, Sunday... And the tens of thousands of students of the Bible institutes have believed that the justified soul could never be unjustified. One of the marks of true evangelical faith, no matter in what denomination, is that a person believes in the final perseverance of the saints. Now we are not quoting men or their beliefs to establish the truth of a biblical doctrine, for the appeal must be made to the scriptures alone. We can present this vast company of faithful believers, however, to refute the idea that those who hold the doctrine of the security of the believer are noted rather for exhibiting a tendency to a low level of Christian living because of the doctrine than for holiness, zeal, and devotion to the Lord. But if, and we will write it if with capital letters, if any believer should be guilty of the great sin of presuming upon the grace of God, to justify some act of sin. There is set in motion the whole corrective operation of the grace of God. This chastening work may proceed through various degrees of severity and even end in the death, the physical death of the guilty one. For the sin unto death is a sin unto physical death. Brethren, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. In a physical death, that will not be the same as if we lived to long maturity, to old age. The sin unto death could not be a sin unto spiritual death. The person who has been born again has been declared righteous by God. Since this has been done in grace, it is impossible for the declaration to be reversed. We should realize that just as the verdict of condemnation does not make a sinner more evil, so the verdict of justification does not make the believer more righteous. It is the work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit through the use of the word of God to cause spiritual growth within the life of the believer. That's what we read in John 17:17, 17, 17, where the Lord says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And in 1 Peter 2, 2, where we read, Thou therefore as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Now justification is a judicial declaration that the believer is proclaimed to be righteous while he is still ungodly. His spiritual death has been borne by the Savior. Now nothing but physical death could ever touch him, for the Lord has declared him to be righteous with divine righteousness, and the life that he has given unto him is eternal life. The Bible presents us with abundant evidence that the old nature, the nature of fallen Adam, which is the nature of every human being by birth, is totally evil. Original sin is in every man, and that it will seize every opportunity to exalt itself. It is the flesh. Now, suppose the old Adamic nature within a redeemed individual comes into the ascendancy, presumes upon the grace of God and commits some sin that is a public denial of the faith, that causes weak brethren to stumble, or that is a bold defiance of the rights of God in the redeemed life. In such cases, God must begin to operate within the believer. If the very same acts are committed by an unbeliever, God may pass them by without notice, for any number of sins cause no change in the position of the unregenerate man who is under the wrath of God from the beginning. But God must work in the life of his child, as he himself has said, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, without discipline, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now it must be said at this point that not all of the sufferings that come in a believer's life are the chastening discipline of the Lord. There are some sufferings which are indeed corrective. There are others which are constructive. And there is a third classification of sufferings which must be called exemplary. This we have seen. Back in earlier chapters, where we have discussed the fact that tribulation worketh patience. Now, we shall deal at length with the first phase of suffering here. The sufferings which are chastening, which are disciplinary. We shall deal at length with this, but we merely mention in passing that constructive sufferings are described in the case of Paul, who besought the Lord thrice that some thorn in the flesh should depart from him, but who was told, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The third type of sufferings, that which was for the glory of God, is to be found in the experience of Job, as well as in the experience of the man who was blind from birth. In the latter case, when the disciples asked, Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. It is for this reason that no Christian is ever permitted to judge another. It is impossible for any man to know the inward workings of God in another's heart. Is God doing the individual the great honor of permitting him to be a battleground in the invisible war that is going on between the great rebel and God? Is God rubbing rough spots down with the sandpaper of suffering? Has the individual gotten out of the will of God in such a way that the only manner in which the matter can be dealt with is by the force of God's power? Judge not that ye be not judged. But if there is some suffering that comes within your own life, it will be very wise to flee to the cross and to cry out, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. For if you are honest in that prayer, the Lord will reveal to you the state of your heart before him and will bring you immediately back into full fellowship. And he will not continue in the operation of pressure upon you that must end in the most terrible earthly judgment if you resist the pressure and continue in your own willful way. And you must never forget that the Lord loves you, loves you, loves you with an intense love that is beyond any human comparison. This is why when you get out of his will, he will begin to work on you with a process that is light, a process that is as light as the wing of a moth. Only when you resist that first gentle brush of love will he come upon you as a lion. I'm referring to Hosea 5, where he says, I shall be as a moth to Ephraim. And then when they turned away and formed an earthly alliance, I will be to them as a lion. And it is only when you resist the crushing of the lion judgment that he will return to his own place, abandoning you to the sin that is unto death and finally taking you home to heaven to an eternity that will be crownless for you and with all your works burned away. Now, this is a great study and we must suspend it at this point, but the Lord willing, in our next study, we'll go on to see fully what is this sin unto death that is involved in our text. Brethren, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Ye shall die physically and go to heaven before your ordinary time. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall bless the truth to every heart and use it to thine honor and thy glory. Give restlessness to any who have not been saved and comfort thy people as thou seest their needs. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: We are debtors to God for the life and power he has deposited to the account of every believer. We must give an account for how we use or neglect our spiritual resources in Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Christian Obligation. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals at alliancenet. Org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Christian's Obligation, or simply request message number R8-17. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Sex, Marriage, and Divorce. God designed the marriage relationship to be a picture of our eternal union with Jesus Christ. And yet, Christian marriages often fall woefully short of this lofty ideal. This free booklet shines the light of biblical truth upon various facets of this vital subject. Chapter titles include Lust and Christian Marriage, Marriage and the Home, Divorce and Remarriage, and For Time and Eternity. Ask for your free copy of Sex, Marriage, and Divorce when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org.